information they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everybody. I am Ari Engel, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Creative Community for Peace is an entertainment industry nonprofit organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. Uh, to learn more about our work and to find out more about what we do, please visit ccfpeace.com, that is ccfpeace.com, or you can go to creativecommunityforpeace.com, creativecommunityforpeace.com. We are excited to celebrate our 10th anniversary this year, and you can check out some of our tremendous accomplishments uh, on our website. Uh, we are glad to have all of you here today in our public square as we present Dispelling the Myths, a fantastic educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. We kick things off this week with a discussion on the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and unpack really what this movement truly stands for. Uh, feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. Uh, just a note though, to please leave the Q&A section for questions only so we don't lose those and not for just general comments feel free to email us at any time for general comments and we'll always get back to people. Uh, this week's guest is Dan Diker. Dan is a fellow and senior project director at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, where he heads the program to counter political warfare and BDS. He is the editor and co-author of JCPA's latest volume, Israel Phobia in the West. He has also authored numerous books in the global BDS campaign, including The Pact B Deception, Unmasked, Defeating Denormalization, Students for Justice for Palestine Unmasked, and BDS Unmasked, Radical Roots, Extremists End. Uh, you can find all of these online, and we're going to be discussing a lot of what is found in these reports uh, online. Dan is also a research fellow at the International Institute for Counterterrorism, IDC Herzliya, and previously served as the Secretary General of the World Jewish Congress, the global diplomatic organization representing Jewish communities in 100 countries. Uh, Dan received a BA from Harvard University and an MA in Government and Counterterrorism Policy from the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya. Uh, he is now currently completing a PhD dissertation at UK's University of South Wales. So we really have someone that is a real true expert on the subject today. Uh, he joins us for Israel. How are you doing, Dan? Ari, how are you? And hi to all the wonderful folks out there uh, on the call this evening. It's really an honor to be with you. Uh, to kick things off and to really just lay the groundwork for today's discussion, in general terms, what is the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement? Well, Ari, the, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, um, which formally started uh, in, two, and I would argue, in 2004 with the emergent in Ramallah, in Palestinian Authority-controlled territory, under the umbrella called PACB, the Palestinian Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, which was a uh, which was a predecessor to the BNC, the Boycott National Committee in Ramallah, uh, in as well, uh, was a a, 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 a full blown membership that included, as we'll talk about uh, later in the call on in our discussion, uh, five 
EU and US designated terror organizations that including Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and others that sat together with 170 what are called Palestinian civil service organizations um, uh, that would then morph into the, in uh, 2005, the BDS call, which is the establishment of uh, the BDS uh, uh, movement. And then ultimate, and then finally that would then morph into the 2007 um, Boycott National Committee. The idea behind these three bodies was a total, um, let's call it, Clausewitz used to say, it was said war is, is uh, politics is war by other means, war is politics by other means, and BDS is war by other means as the BDS scholar David May stated in 2020. What that means in short is that the BDS movement uh, is constituted of a, um, I, we, we would call it a multi-sectoral, war against the existence of the Jewish and democratic state, the state of Israel, uh, that would include a, a total warfare, uh, cultural warfare, economic warfare, political warfare, diplomatic warfare, legal warfare, um, artistic warfare, sports warfare, right. warfare in every sector of civil society uh, in order to isolate and ultimately eliminate uh, the Jewish state uh, from the community of nations. Right. And and just so a lot of people ask this question about whether the boycott call is legitimate or not, and why are some boycott calls maybe are legitimate and others are not. Uh, for instance, there was a civil rights era Montgomery bus boycott, which you know was widely supported. And on the other end, there was the German, the German boycott of Jewish goods in the 1930s. And the boycott movement, all you know, they like to push the line that you know th this is just a, a peaceful movement and a boycott call and should be supported by people around the world. Like, what differentiates this from legitimate boycott calls? Well, that's a great question, uh, Ari. Because in fact, you're absolutely right. Meaning, the the uh, working assumption of your initial question is boycotts aren't definite, aren't necessarily bad. It depends on the intention. It depends on the actor. It depends. Are we talking about? a punitive boycott for purposes of inclusion, for purposes of exclusion. I remember being a student at Harvard College um, uh, in a class taught by the very well-known Dr. Robert Coles. And we talked about uh, Rosa Parks, this, uh, this um, African-American woman who ended up becoming the heroine and uh, very much the trigger for the American civil rights movement who in Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama, 1965, she refused to get to move to the back of a bus because she because of the color of her skin. And Rosa Parks wanted to be included, not excluded. And in fact, right. that's what triggered a year long boycott of the Montgomery bus system because she wanted to become equal and included in American social life and right. American racial equality. The same for the Delano Great Boycott in 19 in 1965 to 1970. Filipino Americans, Fiji Americans, Spanish Americans, led by C the very famous Cesar Chavez, who wanted a raise from $1.24 to $1.42 an hour and other benefits um, uh, in the farm movement. And they led a five-year boycott to be included in American economic life. Well, there's another kind of boycott called exclusionary boycott, which is also quite legitimate. We see that um, we see that now where the Women's Tennis Association is boycotting the Chi China's Tennis Association for the very problematic disappearance of Chinese ten uh, tennis star Peng Shui. Right. And, and the WTA, which is, this is unprecedented, by the way, since 
the period of apartheid South Africa, which leads me to the second example of an exclusionary boycott um, that I think everyone on this call remembers um, that uh, was that the former apartheid South African regime was subject to in the international community uh, across cultural, economic, trade, uh, and sports uh, exclusion in order to uh, in order to change that white supremacist government that would determine uh, where its black majority could could live, could congregate, which water fountains they could drink at, which restaurants they could dine at, which hospitals could they be served at. Uh, which tennis courts they could play on, uh, what stages they could act on or could not act on. Well, that's another kind of uh, a boycott meant to exclude for the purposes of reform and restoration. Then you have, Ari, finally, something very, very different, uh, and I might say very ominous um, and dangerous for the cause of peace, and that's BDS. The BDS campaign seeks to, not to include, not to boycott, to exclude in order to reform, but to eliminate Right. completely Israel from the family of nations. Um, and uh, this is uh, really a stark difference that I think even in Israel, it took people some years to understand exactly what the BDS um, campaign was about as a totalitarian eliminationist campaign. Well, uh, I want to thank Matt for throwing right. up this slide. Because so I so that's to what I wanted to get to is, is, you know, what really are the aims of the boycott movement as we're discussing this? It's it's not peace. It's not inclusion. It's really about something more nefarious, as you're talking about, about the elimination of the state of Israel. And uh, as Matthew put up here, uh, this is Omar Bargadi, one of the co-founders. So I think his words tell it more than anybody else, right, what their real aim is, correct? Oh, I think you said it very well. If we just listen to Mr. Bargudi, uh, who, by the way, got his master's degree at none other than Tel Aviv University, Right. Uh, enjoying the freedoms of, uh, of the democratic state of Israel. He said, uh, and this is one of his famous quotes that's really sort of brought out uh, frequently by people who want to prove um, the, the BDS's eliminationist uh, a substructure just by listening to Mr. Bargudi. He said, um, not only definitely, most definitely, they oppose a Jewish state in any part of, of geographical Palestine and, and, um, and they will never accept Jewish self-determination. He said very recently, just a few weeks ago, if you look at the bottom of the screen, that Jews are not a distinct civilization. Jews are actually Arabs and Jews have no right to self-determination. This is really in a, heart, in a heartbeat, in, in a very tight message, in a what they in Hebrew, a koteret, a headline, what the, what the BDS movement is all about. And, it, and it's not, uh, not self-evident, uh, Ari, because many people th have thought for many years that BDS is kind of like the Rosa Parks type of boycott to be included, but it's not at all. It's to eliminate. And I think that Mr. Barguti and many others, if you go to Google, just go to the statements of the leaders of BDS and you'll see they're all saying the same thing. No Israel on the map of the international community. And that's what BDS's ultimate goal is, is to, is to really um, cause Israel's implosion from the inside or uh, uh, cause Israel uh, to be uh, dismantled from the outside. Right. And here, uh, yeah, and, and he's made statements, everything from he doesn't believe in a binational state. He doesn't he believes in, in, in a one state solution that where Israel should be renamed Palestine. Um, I, I think his words have been crystal clear over the year. And here we see uh, Matthew putting up the demands of the boycott movement. But before we get to even that, you know, the boycott call is, is not new. Right. The Arab League has uh, was boycotting called for a boycott of Israel before there was even a state of Israel. 
Um, and this almost seems like the boycott movement is simply a continuation of the same fight against Israel since before 1948. Their goal is for there not to be a state of Israel, right? Well, you, you know, you've made a very important observation. Nothing like historical context um, in order to put things in, in intellectual and moral order. And you're absolutely right. Um, the BDS movement is a continuation along the continuum of boycotts against the pre-state, what was called yeshuv in Hebrew or in English community, that began as early, Ari, as 1922, right. when, the, when the, the, um, the, Arab, the Fifth Arab Palestine Congress, or I'm sorry, the Palestine Arab Congress of 1922, called for a boycott against Jewish business, businesses and then Jewish immigration in 1929. And then if, um, if uh, the um, Creative Community for Peace uh, family remembers that in 1936, 1939, there was something called the Great Arab Revolt, and that was also based on a total boycott of Jews uh, in geographical Palestine at that time. And then we went, and you remember what happened in 1945? I'm sure you do. It was the establishment of the Arab League, and, they, uh, and the Arab League had an official boycott uh, against Israel. And in 19, three years after Israel was founded, 1951, there was an office, the central boycott office in Damascus was, was essentially um, was established in order to monitor and enforce um, three types of boycotts, a primary boy, a boycott uh, against Israel, a secondary boycott against countries doing business with Israel, and then, and then a third boycott of countries who were blacklisted and other, and other companies who would be punished for doing businesses with those that were blacklisted. So it does go way back uh, to the beginning of the 20th century, to the beginning of the 20th century. And, but BDS is different for another reason. This is, and I think this is a critical point. BDS today uses, it has been mainstreamed. It is, not, it is not limited to the Arab world, but it is mainstreamed in the international community and is based on the notion that Israel, as Professor Erwin Cutler said just uh, 96 hours ago, um, that Israel represents all that is evil, it has no right to be, and it negates all that is good. And this is, um, this is a very troubling uh, statement that we heard from uh, an analysis from Professor Cutler, the former uh, Justice Minister of Canada, because it is now being justified through right. social justice, human rights, as a function of our common humanity, meaning the international community, Ari, must, as a, as a mandate, get rid of, rid the world of the one uh, uh, collectively understood to be evil state for the good of our common humanity. And that is the danger of BDS. It is no longer the Arab world. It is the international community that is today um, uh, leading this uh, campaign. And we saw it through right. the whole, this whole apartheid these, these apartheid accusations we'll talk about in a moment. Right. And, you know, and I think this really coalesced at the Durban conference in 2001, which was really a pivotal, I think, turning point for the, the modern iteration of the boycott movement, uh, where they essentially, these leftist NGOs called for a full boycott, divestment and sanctions of Israel, right? Uh, can you, you know, give us a little bit more information on that? Because I don't think many people understand this didn't come out of nowhere. The, the boycott movement wasn't some... Uh, you know, civil society, Palestinian civil society um, initiative that just they right. launched in 2005, right? 
Well, that, that, that's absolutely right. In other words, it wasn't the Big Bang, as, as Professor Hawking's uh, blessed memory would, would have told right. us, right? It did come from somewhere. And if we, if, we, if we take out our magnifying glass and we trace it back, as you point out very well, one of the great milestones of the BDS uh, uh, global campaign was in 2001, nine days before 9-11. Right. Um, and, and this is, here's the context, right? It, um, in um, August 31st, 2001, to celebrate six years of the end of apartheid in the birthplace of apartheid itself in Durban, South Africa, gathered hundreds of civil society organizations uh, in order to come together, stand shoulder to shoulder, women and men of goodwill, in order to uh, participate in the first major international UN sanctioned and sponsored um, conference against racism, xenophobia, and related intolerances. It was essentially an international statement against slavery, which was still being conducted on the African continent, still being conducted in right. Iran and in right. some Arab countries. And that was, the, that was the context in which everyone came together. And what happened was, Ari, that a international conference against racism transformed into a racist conference against one state in the world, and that was uh, the state of Israel, the nation state of, of the Jewish people. And this is where we saw the convergence of Nazi anti-Semitism and uh, far-left communist Soviet anti-Semitism. And uh, we might be able to see on the slide, there's a slide a day. Uh, and I think they were literally passing out flyers outside of it with that sort of Nazi imagery attached to it. And we should recall, you know, Dan, as we're talking about this, remember 2001, this is 10 months after the Camp David Accords, right? This is right after Ehud Barak had agreed to the Clinton parameters. So we're talking right on the heels of one of the you know, greatest pushes for peace to end this conflict. We get this Durban conference uh, and this call for a full boycott of Israel. Well, that's absolutely the case. In fact, I'll, I'll even go further. I'll even, you know, I'll, I'll see you and up and, and, and one up you just on that, on your whole um, observation. This was the end of nine years of the, of the greatest number of concessions that a, a small demo or any democratic country has made to a self-declared uh, enemy, uh, enemy authority called the, in this case, the PLO. 1993 was the Oslo Accords the pullout from Gaza, the pullout from parts of the West Bank, agreed and, and sanctioned by the international community, the establishment of the Palestinian Authority in 1995, the 1994 Rabin deposit, which meant that, that, that Itzhak Rabin, of blessed memory, was prepared to have Israel pull out um, all the way south of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, give it back to um, Bashar al-Assad, give it to Bashar al-Assad, in exchange for a full peace agreement. And then we saw not only that, we saw in 2000, we saw a unilateral uh, withdrawal from Lebanon, from the security zone, um, which was our last sort of major defensive obstacle against Hezbollah um, in the interest of peace. So there were three, the context was three major peace agreements uh, and into, uh, uh, the Al-Aqsa War of Terror when, when Camp David collapsed. And that led to this, uh, what they called uh, Nazi Zionism uh, accusation that you just saw on the placard now that fused um, conventional anti-Semitism, 
right-wing anti-Semitism with far-left uh, with far-left anti with far-left anti-Semitism. And there you have it: Israel as a Nazi regime. Uh, Fiamma Nurenstein called it the Nazification uh, of Israel in a in a recent book, um, and it um, it really would become the beating heart. It would le it would trigger the BDS movement and become the beating heart of the um, of the BDS movement uh, going forward. You see here in the I want to point uh, point out to our um, to our guests uh, to the audience here. This is the summation of the Durban One NGO. Uh, NGO forum that concluded only about Israel, the only state in the international community. Israel is a racist apartheid state guilty of racist crimes, including war crimes, acts of genocide, and ethnic cleansing. This right. is basically a clarion call for the destruction uh, of of the uh, uh, of the Jewish state. Right, and, and then uh, they actually called for a full boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. That language was actually used. And by the way. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize when you're talking about this NGO forum, um, we're talking about groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. So it's not surprising that, you know, 20 years later, these organizations are singling out Israel once again, since they essentially helped launch the, 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 the modern boycott, divestment and sanctions movement then. Very much so. Very much so. And I'll just point out um, uh, one thing that, that came out of Durban that is uh, plaguing us today. This uh, toxic convergence of traditional genocidal anti-Semitism uh, that is justified in the name of and with the language of human rights and situated right. in Durban, which became, which has since become the world symbol of human rights, um, is, is now being justified through the laundered language of, uh, of, of human rights and the cause of our common humanity, but using uh, the uh, a different package, a different wrap, a different wrapper. It was first right. the uh, it was first the, the the idea in Mein Kampf that the Jews are the root of all evil. To the idea in in Durban one that the Jewish not only the Jews but the Jewish nation and its nation state is the source of all evil. Right. So I want to talk a bit about the structure of the BDS movement now that we've sort of laid the groundwork of where it's come out of and, and its roots. Um, Matthew, I think there's a great slide, you know, there's the BDS National Committee or BNC that you mentioned is based in Ramallah, that is sort right. of a, a governing body of sorts. So I wonder if you can just talk a bit about, you know, how that is structured. Do, do they take all direction from the BNC, all these BDS groups around the world? And who is part of this BNC? And who are the member groups of it? Well, this is a, a little bit, you know, um, if we were in a, uh, a master's class in um, a, a PowerPoint, they would they would be very angry with me for making such a complicated looking slide <laughs> with so many details. But I think I can make sense of it here. Um, the, the Boycott National Committee, uh, surprisingly to many, is constituted uh, by uh, uh, more than 200 civil society organizations. But those civil society organizations by day are also affiliates of Palestinian designated terror groups by night. Right. And here you see on the left side of the screen, uh, Palestinian Liberation Front, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hamas, PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a Marxist-Leninist uh, terror group designated by the European Union and the United States as a terror group, and then the a breakoff, which is the PFLP General Command. They all sit under the umbrella of something called PNIF, the Palestinian National Islamic Forces, which was an umbrella terror group, Ari, that emerged 
in 2000, founded by Yasser Arafat and Marwan Barghouti, who today sits in an Israeli prison for the murder of seven people in, um, in, in uh, uh, more than seven people, but uh, uh, in uh, the- During um, the second intifada, right. During the second intifada, the Al-Aqsa War of Terror, correct. And that, the, as you can see, I tried to show how PNIF, Palestinian National Islamic Forces, sits in the uh, BDS National Committee together with these so-called civil society organizations. Now, look at the yellow, Aldemir, Al-Khak, Ademir, PPYU, DC, uh, DCIP, uh, Defense of Children's International, uh, Palestine, and, and others. These are by and large connected with one or more of the terror groups on the left. That's where they get funding, and that's where they uh, and that's where they also draw inspiration. Um, and they are sitting together around the table at the at the um, boycott national committee at the BDS national committee in Ramallah. And then we have other organizations such as Stop the Wall. Many people have heard about these, uh, and the National Committee for Grassroots Resistance. And then, of course, PACB, which we discussed, the Palestinian Academic cultural boycott of, um, of Israel. So on the one hand, um, they take direction and inspiration from the committee in Ramallah. And then, you know, we have something now called iPhones and Androids, which can mobilize a billion people in five minutes um, on social networks with a single message. So okay. it's very easy to direct decentralized groups um, in this network around the world, specifically South Africa and India, uh, and um, Latin America and the United States. That is, um, that is very much where we are in terms of the structure of the, of the BNC, the, um, uh, which is really the guiding arm, the inspiration of the BDS movement, and it continues today. And there are other branches, which we'll talk about momentarily on, on university campuses and in academia, which is um, equally problematic. Right, and you know what's interesting when looking at this, uh, as you mentioned, the PFLP is a designated terrorist organization by the European Union in America and carried out you know, brutal hijackings and killing of, of innocent people through the decades. And they, you know, it's almost all converges, right? You have these groups like Adamir and Al-Haq and DCIP who they use essentially, and we see this in the news, you know, Israel recently designated them as terrorist organizations because essentially, as you're talking about here, they are affiliates, essentially they're covers for the PFLP. And it's a way for the PFLP to raise money and funding and then use it for other purposes. And we see it all sort of circles back and it's all part of the BDS movement now. And it's like, those aren't just normal, um, you know, human rights organizations, but essentially it all funnels back into the boycott movement, which I don't think many people really understand. It's true. And in fact, I can prove it to you. I, I, would, um, I would ask um, the, the good folks on this call to take out a pen and write down a report that was done by Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs with highly valuable intelligence information called Terrorists in Suits terrorists in suits, right. which talks about already exactly what you're talking about, which is I am a, um, I, I am a civil society, so-called human rights organization in, in Palestine, inverted commas, by day, and then I'm a PFLP terror activist at night. Uh, the terrorists in suits PDF will prove beyond any doubt this, um, this convergence, this, this fusion uh, between these so-called human rights organizations and terror organizations that work together, covering from one another, legitimizing, uh, legit legitimizing the work of the PFLP in large part, um, while using the the legitimacy and according to U.S. law, using the legitimacy of U.S. Um, um, uh, NGO law in order to raise money 
uh, right. for uh, terror organizations. And in, in, in a moment, if I could if I could just point out that maybe we'll point it out in a moment, but the 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 beating heart, uh, the ideological DNA of the university uh, Palestinian solidarity uh, uh, enterprise that is known as SJP Students for Justice in Palestine, they are the result of Hamas operatives that remained in the United States following the Holy Land Foundation case, which is the largest case of terror financing in the history of the United States, um, between 10 and $20 million. The unindicted operatives of, of, uh, in that Holy Land Foundation case that sent some Hamas operatives to jail were, were ended up starting the AMC, the American Muslims for uh, AMP, American Muslims for Palestine, right. and ultimately Students for Justice in Palestine. That's right. just another manifestation of what you were talking about. So it's Hamas right. on campus throughout the United States under right. the wrapper and with the legitimization of students uh, on the face of it promoting Palestinian rights. Right. And before we dig in a little bit more on the college campus issue, you know, CCFP deals a lot of the cultural boycott side, but I think it's important to talk more about the college campuses just on the funding issue. So as we talked about, we, we've seen here how, you know, a lot of these groups have sort of uh, um, uh, used the cover of other organizations. They start to raise funds and funnel money to these groups. Where else does funding come? That is probably one of the biggest questions we always get asked is who is funding the boycott movement? So beyond sort of these groups using cover organizations, who else is behind some of the funding? And I know it's very well, difficult to track, by the way. I, I know they cover their tracks, you know, very carefully on this stuff. It is it is difficult to track uh, uh, for many uh, for many different reasons. One, because they don't many don't report properly. Others report behind. Uh, uh, you know, straw organizations, um, and and everyone has human rights uh, branding. But where a lot of Western European countries, specifically the Netherlands, Ireland, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, Norway, Sweden, France, Spain, the UK, Austria, and Switzerland ha have been major sponsors of these so-called human rights organizations, which are really political warfare organizations that that cooperate, affiliate with, advocate for, right. defend um, the, uh, you know, these designated terror organizations that we saw two slides ago. Now, in addition to that, you've got a lot of Christian charities in Europe. You have, um, uh, you have um, other non-government uh, human rights organizations that, and, they, and they donate to central or what they call Palestinian counterparts in Ramallah and in Gaza. Um, and and uh, primarily, they say it's for the children. They say it's it's uh, it's to protect women. It's in the name of human rights. And in fact, it it goes um, it goes very uh, uh, frequently, if not all the time, into the coffers in Gaza of Hamas because nothing gets distributed in Gaza without Hamas um, uh, filtering it, putting its hands on it, using it. And in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, in the Palestinian Authority-controlled areas, it goes through Ramallah. And, and in large part through the PLO offices and the Palestinian Authority offices. Right. A lot of it gets used by them. You should know, by the way, that in terms of, of BDS, of which the Palestinian Authority is one of the major proponents of the anti-normalization BDS movement today, um, uh, that um, uh, there, are, um, uh, you know, there, there are frequent pictures of, of, of Israeli um, materials and inventory from supermarkets being thrown into fires, you know, in order to really incite the public um, against Israel, which I must admit 
which I must say, and, and I say it happily, is not working all too right. well in the public. But um, this is a this is a major uh, financing. This is one of the major financing arms of the BDS movement. I just will add one word. It's not an expensive enterprise. In order to be an effective BDS um, uh, BDS activist uh, office, you only need one or two employees, a couple of cell phones, and uh, a couple of digital experts, and you can begin. You can begin to uh, to incite to uh, to propagate propaganda, and and that is what very many of these hundreds of uh, Palestinian civil society organizations are. They operate on thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, no more, and that's why you know the Rockefeller, you know the Rockefeller Foundation and the Soros Foundation, which is called right. the Open Society Foundation, they donate millions of dollars a year to these organizations just right. in what they say in England, dribs and drabs, 20,000 right. here, 40,000 here, 70,000 here, and people can survive on these budgets for many years. Right, and then, you know, and then there's also been questions about countries such as Qatar and even Iran funneling money to some of these organizations whether it's through the PFLP directly or Hamas or, and it all sort of makes it into the same, the same pot. And as you mentioned, it's while there is the BNC, which is sort of a central body and umbrella, it, there are local organizations that sort of take their direction from these groups that are unaffiliated. So I guess, as you're mentioning, it's tough to follow the money because you could have some local group, as we just saw in Sydney, uh, just pick up the boycott call, use the language, use the information and sort of the, the graphics and materials that these groups provide, and they're off and running on their own. So I saw Matthew put up the college campus, uh, talking about American college campus. Let's go back to that, because I think that's important to discuss. And you were just starting to talk about that. You know, what sort of tactics are we seeing on college campuses? And, you know, maybe expand a little bit on, on who these groups are. Sure, Ari. You know, people are very surprised when they hear that the situation on college campuses is, is one that is defined by support for the Hamas, by, by inspiration by the Hamas. When you hear um, the refrain, from the river to the sea, right. Palestine will be free. That at is all the their rallies, rallies, at all their rallies. Every, every I, I would go on record, Ari, as to say that in every one of the 250 plus campuses in North America, in which there is a student for justice in Palestine branch office, in addition to the Muslim Students Association branch office, which is a separate but parallel, but, but parallel group, the refrain from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is used at every single one of those, uh, of those campuses. And it, and it means exactly what it says, is that from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, Palestine will be free of Jews, will be free of Israel, will be liberated uh, from Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. This is a clarion call uh, for the, again, for the elimination, uh, uh, the total elimination of, of Israel in that geographical area that, um, in which Israel is, is situated. So people ask me, well, don't they, the Palestine Solidarity um, uh, uh, Foundation and the SJP, they really just support Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, right? They want two states for two peoples, right? right? In line with the Oslo Accords and in line with ongoing negotiations. Answer, no, they don't. Answer, they are, uh, they are pushing for the elimination of Israel, not for the inclusion of Palestine. And um, this is a very important point that people are unaware of and, and that really has to be exposed and, and to which people must become educated to really understand uh, what we're talking about. Hatem Bazian, by the way, the gentleman that you see here 
in the lower right of your screen, has called for a violent intifada in the United States. You can see him saying this if you go on to Google and Google him in terms of American intifada in the United States. He is one of the most radical, he's, he is named um, by some organizations as the most dangerous professor in America. He is virulently anti-Semitic. He is virulently uh, eliminationist vis-a-vis -vis Israel. And he himself is the chairman of the American Muslims for Palestine, which is an organization, as I said a few minutes ago, that grew out of the, um, uh, the closing of the Holy Land uh, Foundation by the FBI. Uh, and uh, uh, he is a supporter of the Hamas. Uh, and he is also the president of the Students for Justice in Palestine, right. educated in Berkeley, um, and now runs the first all-Muslim college called Zaytuna College um, in, uh, in California. You, um, you, know what's, you know what's interesting, too, is a lot of people don't, as we're sort of talking about here and actually putting these words up here from Omar Bargadi and, and, and from the, the founder of AMP, when you hear their words, that is, uh, you know, they tell you exactly what they mean and what they're looking to do. And unfortunately, to a lot of people in the West, they couch that language and sort of hide a lot of what their ultimate aims are. They talk about how they're an environmental, BDS is an environmental cause, BDS is a women's rights issue, it's an LGBTQ issue, it's a social justice cause. If you stand for Black rights, you stand for Palestinian rights. You know, they've really done a good job, I think, of simple messages, apartheid, genocide, ethnic cleansing, just using sort of just buzzwords, right? What's the worst thing anything can be in the world? Those things. And that's all you need to know. Don't talk about peace or don't learn about the conflict. Don't go visit Israel. And then I think the other yeah. thing is um, they are using the language of social justice and the cause of social justice on whatever society it may be. So in America, they say, you know, look at the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict through the racial lens. In South Africa, it's look at it through the apartheid lens. In Australia, it's look at it through the indigenous issue because their aboriginal issue is so, um, you know, important to the people there. And it's almost how they, they adapt their messaging to whatever society and ever cause they're trying to, you know, sort of uh, uh, co-opt. And they've been effective at that. Well, they really have been effective at that. And it's really important to point out that the source of this strategy that you very eloquently explicate. And the source is, uh, uh, can be located in the person of Yasser Arafat, the, um, the initial chair, well, the second chairman, if you will, of the Palestine Liberation Organization. It was Arafat who, uh, together with his Soviet paymasters and benefactors in the early 1970s, um, would advance this notion of Israel as a, uh, uh, as a racist concept, meaning Zionism is right. racism which everyone remembers was right, passed, right. UN General Assembly, uh, Resolution 3379, the infamous Zionism is racism. That right. came right out of uh, Soviet-inspired and directed Yasser Arafat's strategy of, as you say, to racialize, to racialize Israel. That's what happened. If you, if you go back, anyone who's interested to go back, read Arafat's speech. He talks about Israel as a, as a fanatical racist uh, colonialist, imperialist nation. Remember the 70s were the decade in which African nations began to, uh, they sought independence from European um, uh, colonial uh, colonizers and so on. And, and, and the South Africa apartheid issue was red hot, right on center stage in international community. Arafat read it brilliantly and understood. And you, and you pointed it out, Ari, right now in your example. He said, the way we have to go here is to speak the language when you're in Rome, 
um, you know, speak Italian right. <laughs> or right. speak speak the language of your host uh, of your of your host population. Here it is: the contemporary roots of BD-powered anti-Semitism. Um, and here is Arafat in the uh, United Nations General Assembly back in November of 1974. Zionism is, is an imperialist, colonialist, and racist. Racist is uh, synonymous with apartheid. So right. he, the if it's racist, you have to get rid of it, right? That, you that's have to get rid thing. of it because it's a war crime. Remember, right. racism and apartheid were the first right. internationally recognized war crime. So if racism is a war crime and Israel is a racist uh, and, and, and Zionism is racism, it means that Zionism is a war crime. Right. It means that right. Zionism, meaning the founding idea of Jewish self-determination is a war crime. And that, Ari, as we know, was affirmed by the international community and stood in place for 16 years, from 1975 right. to 1991. And only and it was only disbanded and it was uh, reversed uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union uh, done in, um, in the first Bush administration. And it was really led by former Secretary Cheney um, and only because the Soviet Union collapsed. Right. It was, and and, and you, know, it was you, know what's, you know what's incredible? Zionism, what is, what is Zionism? Zionism is progressive and progressive, right? Zionism brought the Middle East democracy. It never knew democracy until Zionism. Zionism brought LGBTQ rights into a region that's never had them. Zionism has brought, you know, uh, um, environment. There's, I think, one of the few countries in the world that has more trees now than it did 100 years ago. Zionism is actually, you know, women's rights. It's, it's really is the progressive cause. And it's sort of been turned on its head to be this nefarious bad word that's a racist word when you have you know, Zionism brought a minorities into its government and into its Supreme Court. That doesn't exist in any other country in the Middle East, right? Zionism Absolutely. actually is the progressive cause, not, you know, anti-Zionism. Absolutely. In fact, it was so progressive, it, it was leading the anti-colonialist cause with the right. fall of the Ottoman Islamist Empire. Right. Uh, it's an indigenous and, and, people that have actually reclaimed their land. It, 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 nothing can be more progressive than indigenous issues such as that. Clearly, but but again, Ari, the, the the problem that we face today is that Yasser Arafat has succeeded from a cognitive point of view of consciousness uh, of influencing consciousness because what he said then in the 1970s, he's on record by saying there are four evils in the 20th century. Zionism is the last remaining evil, and that was his strategy. There was fascism, there was Stalinism, there was apartheid, and then there was Zionism. And the right. Western world bought into this propaganda. And that's why today you have uh, widely respected international human rights organizations laundering language in order to recast Israel as all that is evil and an affront to our common humanity. I mean, it's, it's Orwellian, it's Orwellian in, in, in the deepest sense of the word. Right. So talk a little bit. One one area I want to discuss, which is the uh, policy of anti-normalization that the boycott movement has, which really targets any interaction between Jews and Arabs, which as CCFP, our organization, think is crucial, bringing Jews and Arabs together and this idea of coexistence. But really, the boycott movement, literally in their charter, uh, they reject coexistence and call for only resistance. So I wonder if you can maybe just talk a little bit about this policy of anti-normalization and how it affects companies like SodaStream and, um, you know, how, how this is really an anti-peace uh, policy of theirs. Right. This is it's a very important point. In fact, we can tell a few stories. I, I can tell 
I actually looked before we got online tonight, um, Ari, is when I when I said to myself, when did I first communicate with Ari? And when did Ari first communicate with me? Well, it was back in 219 when you and I exchanged emails. I, I really I saw it today and I had forgotten you, uh, you know, in a very proactive way were involved in the attempt at anti-normalization following the surprise and very exciting victory of Netta, right. the Israeli uh, singer at the 2018 Eurovision contest held in Portugal. And you, uh, and, and you deserve a lot of credit for this, you saw it coming that immediately that, that the BDS World Network immediately in May, 2018, the minute that Netta won in Portugal, they started issuing massive um, communications all around the world to prevent the Eurovision contest from coming to its next uh, venue, which is where? Tel Aviv. Right. And, and they, they were then sending letters, uh, threatening letters out to all of um, BDS. Uh, uh, France, all the contestants, BDS, right. All the contestants, threatening them, frightening them. Um, and they, trying they to bully them, them, bullying and harassing them to Very not participate so. in that event. Very much. And to the year. And remember, the European Broadcast Union was under tremendous right. uh, pressure not to broadcast. Well, they failed. Uh, and in fact, the only country in the European Union that did not show up was Ireland. And as, as, I, as we read before, Ireland is one of the major supporters of the BDS. Uh, no, actually, the Ireland, Ireland did not pull out of that event, by the way. They did. Wait, who, who was the only was it? There was no, actually we were able to CCFP were able to prevent every country from pulling out. There was a lot of pressure in Ireland. And I think maybe it may have been perhaps that the government there or and people maybe didn't uh, side with, you know, with it. But the contestant withstood the boycott pressure. We were in touch with her and she ended up coming and performing. And it was pretty remarkable that exactly they tried to get every broadcaster in all the 40 countries to pull out and were unsuccessful. And they were trying to get contestants even before they were even nominated in their country. In Australia, where there was 12 people just vying for the role to be their contestant and they were facing extreme boycott pressure. So it was pretty remarkable. And as you're talking about, I mean, this is an event like the Olympics, the World Cup. This is supposed to bring the world together. This is supposed to be about, you know, people coming together in song and sharing an experience and the boycott movement wanted to shut that down. Absolutely. It, it, it wanted to shut it down. And, and, you know, extraordinarily, and we saw it, I mean, I'm in Israel now, as you know, in Jerusalem and, and you, the Eurovision Tel Aviv contest was so successful that not one European contestant that showed up went home early. Everyone right. stayed for the full 10 days. Everyone had an amazing time. Everyone sang, Madonna, as you remember, sang in the finals um, uh, in, uh, in Tel Aviv. So it was a great success uh, and a relief um, uh, for the international normalization movement. Now, I want to just make uh, just a, a moment of context about anti-normalization. What is extraordinary to me as an analyst um, uh, uh, and a researcher on BDS is, that, is the anti-normalization uh, position that the Palestinian Authority the diplomatic partner by international law and international agreement of the state of Israel is undertaking um, in, in order to prosecute uh, with uh, uh, to prosecute with prejudice an anti-normalization policy against Israel. That means that today the Palestinian Authority will not pay uh, for insurance claims of Palestinian citizens, good women, men, women and men who come to Israeli hospitals among the best, not only in the Middle East but the world. 
in order to have surgeries, in order to have cancer treatments, in order to have diabetes uh, treatments, dialysis, et cetera, they have pulled out of any kind of um, insurance uh, regime that they had agreed to during the 90s. They tried to get uh, Jibril Rajoub, the Palestinian Football Association and Olympic president, right. tried to get Israel thrown out of the International Soccer Association, Football Association several times. Um, and, and, and he called participating in sports with Israel, now listen to this, a crime against humanity. He's on record. You can go check what I'm saying. Go to Google. You can yeah. check it out. He said it. He's on record. And, th and this goes on and on. And by it the way, when he needed medical care, he was in a, he came to Israeli hospitals faster than anybody. <laughs> yes, sir. He came, not only did he, uh, Israel has taken care of, uh, of President Hania, the, 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 Hamas, the former Hamas right. president, today the head of the Hamas Politburo. He took care of his, his mom, himself, his children in Israeli hospitals, as well as Mahmoud Abbas, as well as Saab Arakat, uh, the former chief negotiator who died of, of, of uh, COVID. He died of COVID-19. Right. He was cared uh, for by Arab and Israeli doctors working, working furiously and intensively for days to try to save the life of Mr. Arakat and, and at, at no cost. And as you remember, Mr. Arakat was one of the chief um, trumpeteers uh, of, uh, of BDS and uh, eliminationist speech against, against Israel. Right. I wanted to point this out to our audience and to our guests because it's so absurd the degree to which the Palestinian Authority it, it, that has full international legitimacy is now advancing the most aggressive anti-normalization against, uh, against Israel, while at the same time claiming that Israel doesn't want peace uh, right. after, after six consecutive offers uh, right. that even reach 96% of the entire territory. Right. And we see how this has a real impact. Like, as I mentioned, just SodaStream briefly, you had here uh, somebody that brought this massive factory to the West Bank, employed Palestinians, had them in, you know, lead jobs at the company. And the boycott movement said, you got to get out of here. And so now they've moved to the Negev and they still have, now it's Arab Israelis that work there and a lot of the Bedouin community, but it, it shows you those jobs were just, you know, it impacted the Palestinian community in the West Bank more than anybody, which was so, you know, so so ridiculous to see. Um, now, just to move on, because we're, we're running short of time and I want to get some questions, but I think we just have to tackle this before we get there. And that's the Arab Accords. Um, I'm sorry, in the Abraham Accords, which I think yeah. has really changed the calculus, right? You see this Arab shift to normalization. And Absolutely. we were discussing yesterday, you know, we don't want to have BDS anymore. We want EIS, engagement investment, right. and sponsorship, right? right? And that's what this is really about. The Arab countries finally engaging with Israel, investing with Israel and sponsoring events together. Absolutely. In fact, this is the good news. This is the reversal of fortunes on the one hand for the Palestinians and the good news for us here tonight and for the region is that there is a new morning of normalization, which in, in Arabic is called tatbiya, tatbiya, which is normalization, cooperation, and collaboration between peoples, cultures, and countries that is taking place since uh, the 2020 signing of the Abraham Accords. And, and what this means is, and many people don't know this, today uh, there, there are tens of billions of dollars in trade, in high-tech, in R&D, in health exchange between Israel, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, and even to a, a smaller degree, Sudan, which is remember was the arch enemy of Israel. Remember in 1967, no peace, no right. recognition, uh, no negotiations out of the very country that today has signed a normalization agreement. What does that meant by the way? 
uh, for the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority and the PLO sits isolated, corrupt, and alone in the Arab League that has lost its patience for the anti-normalization position of the Palestinian Authority. They have uh, the um, the uh, Prince Prince uh, Bandar uh, and and Crown Prince uh, MBZ Mohammed bin Zayed and MBS MBZ is of the UAE. MBS Mohammed bin uh, uh, MBS of uh, Saudi Arabia has said right. the Palestinians have the train has left the station of peace and normalization, and the Palestinian leadership is still at the station. And, right. and this is a major, major shift that I think, as you said, is going to completely change the dynamic uh, between Israel and its neighbors. By the way, Libya, I'll tell you a secret, Libya is on the way, Saudi Arabia is on the way, Oman is on the way, Comoros is on the way, other countries in the Middle East. People are getting on the peace train, on the normalization train, and joining hands uh, in, a, uh, in, in a, a rather surprising but optimistic way. We do have to recognize that, that the Iranian regime is um, a shared enemy is out there. But nonetheless, these normalization agreements are strong and, and it really puts the Palestinians in a position. They've got to decide, do they want to become uh, an independent, peace-loving, democratic nation state or do they want to go into the dustbin of history? It's going to be their choice. The, right. the Arab governments that are normalizing relations with Israel are now put it quietly saying to them, you better decide pretty soon. And you know what's, what's just absurd, I think? We see um, there's a congressional... Um, Push to uh, some sort of resolution to call on uh, you know the Biden admin and whoever is you know eventually whoever's in charge and whoever's in office to actively support the Abraham Accords and there are actually the boycott movement groups in America are urging congressmen to vote against this they were literally urging people to reject the Abraham Accords which is absolutely absurd to me, right? That you have these peace agreements between these Arab countries that are looking to cooperate and forge. Um, you know, forge a peaceful movement uh, and integration between the Arab society and the Jewish society in the Middle East. And you have these people, these boycott groups calling on members of Congress to reject the Abraham Accords, which I think, as you point out, rightfully so, you know, the Palestinian Authority really should be engaging in this because they, I think all of us and everybody listening, and, and I know me and you, we want to see a resolution to this. We understand the Palestinians deserve to be living in prosperity. And uh, in peace with the with you know the, the state of Israel and to us this is just another roadblock to peace. The boycott movement's aims are not peace. It's the elimination of Israel, and that is just uh, once again another roadblock to peace. And is not going to make anything um, achieve anything positive, but only achieve more divisiveness. Um, yes, it's true. So, so to by the way, we should just mention IRA. You should mention IRA. We haven't right. mentioned the International Holocaust Remember Alliance working definition on anti-Semitism which everything right. we've talked about for the last 55 minutes falls under that definition, which was, which was uh, almost unanimously accepted by the Western powers, um, including all the examples which would state that stating that Israel is a the establishment of Israel is a, was a racist endeavor is, anti, is, is purely anti-Semitism. So right. we shouldn't be afraid in order to apply that nomenclature to the current uh, uh, reality of collective anti-Semitism because the international community and the UN, uh, Ambassador Gilad Ardan has been pushing for UN General Assembly acceptance of the IRA definition. Um, so that will create a new standard right. for the international discourse. Right, and even under the three Ds test, um, the double standard and 
you know that that even they trans double standards right you know even under that test you know this fails like we have a question here just to go to the audience questions about amnesty international you know as i don't know if they caught on but as we were discussing earlier you know at the durban conference in 2001 they were one of those ngos that helped launch the boycott movement so it's not surprising that they come out with this you know nefarious you know fraudulent report about apartheid but i think going to your point their call fails ira and fails a 3d test right it certainly does. It, it fails all the. As a matter of fact, I'll share with you, having just been on the Zoom with, with Professor Erwin Cutler, former Justice Minister of Canada, as I stated earlier, he said about amnesty, and he's one of the great legal minds on the international human rights scene today. At the age of 80, he's the special envoy to the Prime Minister of Canada for anti-Semitism, and he said about the amnesty report, it is afactual, ahistorical, and right. acontextual. So it does, it, and it fails, it fails the 3D test. Uh, of Natan Sharansky, former Anatoly Sharansky, prisoner of Zion, which, uh, which he developed together, by the way, with former Ambassador Ron Dermer, former Ambassador of, the United States, uh, of Israel to the United States. The idea, by the way, about 3D, which Natan told me himself, because he wrote a chapter in, in Israelophobia in the West, was like, was this. In order to recognize collective anti-Semitism against Israel, you need to wear 3D glasses in order to see clearly that double standards, demonization, and delegitimization, which you and I and everyone on this call could recognize against individual Jews, also represents collective anti-Semitism. So if you put on 3D glasses, that's why it's called the 3D test. When you put on 3D glasses, Ari, we see much more clearly. And I didn't even know that. I was just using the 3D test without understanding right. why it was called 3D. And that's right. what he said. And, you know, it's very cyclical, you know, by by demonizing, you know, as under this 3D test, demonizing the state of Israel and, and considering an apartheid country in America, you know, and most Jews, 95 percent of Jews support Israel. So then it's we see that anti-Semitism come into America because then it's all of a sudden, wait, all these Jews support this apartheid state. So what are these Jews doing? And that leads to anti-Semitism in America. Um, so there's really, you know, Israel is sort of the stand in for the Jewish people these days. Um, so a couple more questions. One we, that people have been asking, and I'll sort of combine this one, is some of the biggest proponents of the BDS movement uh, are the anti-Zionist Jewish groups. Uh, you know, who are these groups? And I guess in general, the, the other question I saw here is, you know, what can we do to sort of counter, I don't know if it's this group in particular, but what can we do as a community to sort of counter BDS? What should we be doing? Uh, do you want to talk about uh, anti-Zionist uh, uh, groups first? Like Jew Jewish about... Voice for Peace, and if not now, like who, who are these now, groups Jewish and, and what are they yes. doing? They are. It, this is a very, very painful phenomenon because uh, you know Jews have always identified Jews throughout the ages have always identified um, uh, you know with uh, they identified with with in the beginning of, of in beginning three thousand two thousand years ago. Uh, Jews as uh, with uh, with religion as this as the organizing principle of Jewish life, and then it was the nation, and and then uh, you know in the in the Enlightenment it was this notion of uh, of uh, a more uh, a racial uh, or nationalist association. And now it's now it's the state of Israel. The state of Israel became the anchor of Jewish identity in this uh, um, in this particular at this particular time, and to have Jews led by people uh, public figures like Peter Beinhart. Who's, who, who outrightly calls for the, disband, the dismantling of the state of Israel uh, right. and the Jewish Voice for Peace that cooperate with Palestinian terror organizations and, and cooperate with BDS organizations 
and political warfare organizations in order to dissolve Israel is, is rather extraordinary. But I think that it's very important that people have a no tolerance policy for this type of behavior. And if people happen to be uh, a part of these Jewish anti-Zionist groups, they have to be treated um, in, in, in you know, the proper manner as adversaries of, of the future of the Jewish people. And, and it pains me to say such a thing. It also proposes a great challenge to groups like J Street. J Street is not a demonstrably or explicitly a BDS organization. However, if you noticed in the, in the recent amnesty report, it did not take a position, it did not condemn amnesty, it did not outwardly express a, a, a support amnesty, but it did say that amnesty points out that what they call the so-called occupation and the pain of the so-called occupation. Well, it right. misuses international law, it misstates, um, it uses buzzwords that have absolutely no legal significance whatsoever, and it really puts them in a position of deciding, are you going to, are you going to defend um, the, the right of the Jewish state to live in secure sovereignty, which is not to say that Israel doesn't de deserve criticism. Like any country, Israel's right. policies and practices can be deserving of criticism. It's absolutely, and there's no better critic, as you know, Ari, than the state of Israel itself, than the NGOs in Israel, than the media right. in Israel, the public discourse in Israel. But, right. but as you say, Jew, Jew, Jews, I hope, will rally around uh, the notion that Israel has, continues to deserve safe and secure sovereignty um, and safe and secure borders as a small nation state um, in, in, in the Middle East and not tolerate, whether people are Jewish or not Jewish, uh, the calls to dismantle uh, Israel or to call Israel an illegal occupier of Palestinian territories when that is not the case in the West Bank and certainly not in Gaza. Right. Well, with that, I would say to everybody else on the, uh, that's listening, if you know, want to know what you can do, I think it's support organizations like CCFP who are really working to educate people about the boycott movement uh, and what they can do to use their voices to affect positive change. Like for us, for example, we work with a lot of coexistence groups on the ground in Israel, uh, young groups that are bringing, you know, Palestinian kids and Israeli kids together to sing or to play in, in choruses or choirs or um, through tech. So there's a number of groups that are working on the ground to affect change. And you know, feel free to reach out to CCFP and donate to CCFP. Um, once again, I, I, we're at the end of the time now. So I just wanna thank everybody for joining us today. I thought this was a fantastic discussion. Um, I hope everybody learned a lot. I learned a lot from Dan. Um, next week, we have Ben Freeman with us to discuss the roots and rise of anti-Semitism that you don't wanna miss. Once again, this is a whole series called Dispelling the Myths. And each, uh, ep each uh, week, we're going to you know, talk about another topic, some of which we touched on today. And I thought this was the perfect sort of setup. And then next week's anti-Semitism uh, webinar is also the perfect setup. So make sure you sign up for all the discussions. Please go and donate. Uh, CCFPeace.com, CCFPeace.com. You can find out more about all this. Uh, we hope to see everyone online. Uh, stay safe. Dan, thank you again. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful. Enjoyed every moment. Take care. Thank you.